something absolutely ominous is, is spoken by Luke in the very last phrase of the last verse of Luke chapter 5. So take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 5. I want you to find that ominous statement at the end of verse 39. Luke chapter 5, verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. We've been finding out in the book of Luke that the spiritual leaders of Israel, that the Pharisees rested in their own work, in their own righteousness. It was good enough for them. All of their external observances of the law without the heart, it was good enough. It was good enough for them to do all these external observances of the law and establish their own righteousness. It was good enough for them to put on a show of religion without any heart. Ignoring the point of it all, the the weightier things of the law like mercy and compassion. For they had forgotten the very heart of God. They had forgotten their own scriptures like in the book of Hosea where it says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. The Pharisees were not hungry for mercy. They were not helpless and in need of grace. They were drunk on the old wine of their own merits. And they refused the new, mi- the new wine of the mercy of our God found in Christ alone. The old is good enough for us. Well, Jesus brings in something different than that. He brings in the new wine of the new covenant of mercy poured out to needy sinners. He brings in real rest. Even when the Pharisees see Jesus on display and bringing in this rest, they are not filled with rejoicing, but they are filled with rage. The old was good enough for them. And that's what we find as we come into our passage in in Luke chapter 6 and this controversy around the Sabbath. We see this clash between the old and the new, between the, the old wine and the new wine. So as I read our passage this morning, I'm going to reread all of Luke chapter 6 verses 1 through 11. As I reread this, I want you to look for this clash. Look for this clash between the old and between the new. Look for God's mercy that leads to joy in the new wine that Jesus brings. And then also look for their merits that lead to gloom in the old wine 
and be shocked that they could look at Jesus and his glory on display and basically say, go back to your manger, Jesus. The old is good enough for us. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath. Verse 1 of chapter 6 in Luke. And his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Last week, we looked at the Lord of the Sabbath granting mercy in the field in verses 1 through 5. This is really part two as we look today at the Lord of the Sabbath granting mercy in the synagogue in verses 6 through 11. The outline will be the same as last week because the structure is the same in the passage and the outline of a sermon should reflect the structure of the passage. So we come then to the Lord of the Sabbath in the synagogue and we see in verse 6 the setting. The setting. On another, look at verse 6 now. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. So the setting is another Sabbath, another day of rest. And Jesus was found, as he often is, teaching and preaching the Word of God. But what Luke wants us to know is that Sabbath in the synagogue was a man whose right hand was withered. His hand was withered. That is, it was immobile. It was fibrotic. 
It was dried up. It was shriveled up. It was unusable. Which hand was it? His right hand. It's a little detail in the text. Maybe you haven't thought about. His right hand. It's difficult to work. It's difficult to provide when your right hand is withered. He was a needy man, massively needy. And in fact, in one ancient writing, not the Bible, but an ancient writing, states that this man was a stonemason who really wanted to be healed because he didn't want to spend his life as a beggar. Because he would have to, because it was right hand. He was not able to eat. He was not able to provide. His right hand was withered. He was needy. They were hungry in verses 1 through 5. And now we have a needy, helpless individual who could not provide for himself. But according to the strict Sabbath observance, remember last week the 39 extras that were put on top of the Bible regarding the Sabbath, according to those 39 extras, then you could not heal someone on a Sabbath unless this person was going to die on that day. And he was not going to die on that day with a shriveled up right hand. And therefore, it was unlawful for Jesus to heal him on the Sabbath. But see what Luke is doing here on these Sabbath accounts. Both of these accounts, last week it was eating, right, the grain because they were hungry. They had a need, and that need was met on the Sabbath. They were hungry. And now we have a helpless man whose right hand is withered, and he has a need. He's helpless. He cannot provide for himself. So here Luke is presenting the Sabbath of God, the Sabbath of God and the needs of of mankind in both accounts but according to the religion of that day on the sabbath of god you can't meet the needs of men and jesus is saying you've missed the whole point of the law of god you've missed the whole point of the sabbath of god you've missed the whole point of the very heart of god you've missed it completely that is the setting in the synagogue on that Sabbath. And that leads quickly to the accusation in verses 7 through 8. The accusation against Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they find themselves there. They've been sneaking around following Jesus in the fields. Now they get him in the synagogue. And the text says that they are watching him, a very graphic term in the original language with lots of emotion, this word for watching. It means, as one scholar said, this word means to spy on or to watch out of the corner of one's eye. 
which adds to kind of a sinister note here. So the Pharisees have this all set up. They know that the the man with the shriveled hand is there, and so they're watching Jesus because they know good and well this man was not in any mortal danger to die on the Sabbath, and if they can catch Jesus healing him, they would have evidence and proof that Jesus indeed was a lawbreaker. And so the stage is set for quite a showdown between the Son of Man and the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus is not going to back down. He's not going to back down from speaking, and he's going to not back down from showing who he is and what he came to do. And he's going to put these Pharisees in another dilemma with his words to the point where they cannot answer him. So that leads us to the third heading then to the heart of our passage, the dilemma. The dilemma. Verses 9 through 11. Now listen carefully. This is the heart of it. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Stop there. Okay? Track with me. Doing good would be healing this man with the shriveled hand. It would be eating if you're going hungry. That would be doing good on the Sabbath. Doing harm would be not to eat, would be not to heal and let this guy suffer another day. Or Jesus says, well, look what he does. Look at verse 9. Look at your text. I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or destroy it? So healing him would save his life. Not healing him would destroy his life. That's how needy this man was when his right hand was shriveled up. And what's interesting here is Jesus uses the term sozo. He uses the Greek word for spiritual salvation. It's like he's taking a leap from the physical to the spiritual. He's, he's planting a seed that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, but now he's saying that this Sabbath healing is a picture He's saying, is it lawful to save a life on the Sabbath or to destroy lives? And I believe in this word, he's wrapping up the whole point of the Sabbath. It's spiritual salvation from sin. The Lord of Sabbath has come to do good, to show mercy to needy sinners like us. Listen to me. The word save is fitting on the Sabbath. Saving sinners, there's something fitting about saving sinners on the Sabbath. Well, as I said, this Jesus puts these uh, religious leaders in a lose-lose situation here. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Well, if they say it's lawful to do good, then, they're, then when Jesus says be healed, they're, they're celebrating that and getting behind his healing. They can't do that. But if they say uh, 
it's, lawful to, it's not lawful to do good, then they, they kind of expose their, hypocrit- their hi- hypocritical, greedy hearts. And so what do they do? They say nothing. He's caught them in the horns of a dilemma, and so they're silent. They keep their mouth shut. In fact, the whole place is silent. And look what happens between verses 9 and 10. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? Look at verse 10. After looking around at them all. Stop there. It's quiet in the service. He's put them in, an, in a dilemma where they can't say anything. No one says anything. You can hear a pen drop, and Jesus waits. And I believe Jesus, his heart is heavy. As the text says, that he looks around at them all. He just waits in silence. Waiting, pleading with people with his eyes, allowing what he said to sink deeply into their minds and hearts, not just of the Pharisees, not just of the scribe, but everyone, everyone there. Jesus was looking at them all. He had a huge lesson that he was trying to show them about who he was and what he came to do. He was pleading with them to understand that they've got to see beyond the superficial. He was pleading with them to understand that God desires mercy and not sacrifices. He was pleading with them to repent of their self-righteousness and to recognize that they're spiritually hungry and they're spiritually helpless. Just like David and his companions, just like this man with the withered hand on a spiritual plane, they ought to be hungry and needy and helpless. He's pleading with them to see this, that they might find their rest in him. But they answer him not a word. Not a word. They say nothing. They're silent. So Jesus doesn't say anything else, he says, verse 10, or doesn't do anything else, he, after looking at at all of them, he said to him in verse 10, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. And so this man was healed on the Sabbath. You know what's so ironic about this? All the doctors, right, the reason they couldn't heal on the Sabbath is because the doctors had to whip up the potions and the patties and rub and hug and give, do all kinds of work to heal people. Does Jesus do anything? No, no, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't even violate the Sabbath. That must have driven them absolutely up the wall. He just speaks, and it's done. He sets him free. 
physically, now he can work. Now he can provide. It's his right hand that is strong again. He can now eat. You'd think that everyone there, and especially the religious leaders, the Pharisees, would just be so thrilled for this guy that they would just be overwhelmed with joy and they would rejoice. at the new wine that Jesus is bringing. But the text says that they are filled with rage. Now, this is shocking. Let it sink in. Verse 11, but they themselves were filled with rage. They were filled with rage. The old is good enough. We are fine. We have Abraham as our father. The old is good enough. They're filled with rage. You know what this word means? It's, it's an interesting translation of rage. Literally, this word is no mind. No mind. That is, they were out of their mind. No mind. Okay, one Dutch translation, I think, really gets the original language beautifully. I found it in Hendrickson's commentary. Quotes, they completely lost their mind, so angry they were, end quotes. They just lost it. They lost their mind. And they began conspiring right there in the service with the worship of God. The leaders of Israel in church began to conspire together how to murder this man how to put him to death, how to run him through, how to destroy him. And Jesus, I think, catches on to this. I think he knows what's going on. I think there's more a play on words about saving a life or destroy it. He's like, oh, so that's the heart of God. You go to church on a Sabbath and you conspire to kill me. Is that lawful, men? Is that lawful on a Sabbath? And he exposes their hypocrisy, gets right to their murderous heart. Ah, killing the Lord of the Sabbath, does that not violate the Sabbath? Brothers and sisters, I know we are so upset right now, aren't we, at the hypocritical Pharisees. You ought to be if you're awake upset. So I think it's a perfect time to confront our own hearts about our own pharisaical, external, people-pleasing, self-righteous ways. It's a perfect time. Here it is. Perhaps if God is here, we would be able to say like David, I am the man. This is me. One pastor made it clear. He said, becoming a Pharisee is easy. Becoming Pharisees is easy. All we need to do is require everyone to follow our personal religious example and judge them when they fail. All we need to do is make our religious rules more important than Jesus himself. All we need to do is make our religious rules more important than the well-being of others around us, end quotes. 
becoming a Pharisee is easy. Are there areas in our lives, brothers and sisters, listen, where we are cultivating the heart of a Pharisee? How can you tell if we're struggling in this? You ready? No joy. No joy in the presence of the bridegroom. No desire and joy eating with tax collectors and sinners to show them the glories of Christ. No joy. More desire for self-protection and, and for self-exaltation. More desire for our own comfort than meeting the needs of others in mercy. Lord, help us. I mean, think of it. Think of the blessings that we have in Christ. No joy. No joy. We're just like it. The Jews experienced no joy over this miracle, no rejoicing, only out of their mind rage. That's bankrupt external religion. That's what a list of do's and don'ts in order to be accepted by God and make yourself better than the next guy will do to you. Joyless, misery, hopelessness. That's a spirit of legalism. It robs us of joy. So when we look at extra-biblical, listen to me, when we look at extra-biblical requirements, that we are so proud of what we have done and we judge others and we set our own standards of spirituality, we are cultivating the heart of external pharisaical religion. And this kind of spirit can absolutely destroy a church. This kind of spirit can break up families and promote rebellion as your children's age. This kind of spirit robs a believer of, the, of their joy and believing. Simple faith and a heart of love for Jesus. And this kind of mindset does not promote holiness. It destroys holiness. That's the point here. The Pharisees missed the joy of the Sabbath. They missed the rest. They missed the joy. And unfortunately, like many others, they miss what it pointed to, their redemption from sin. Are there areas in our lives that we are cultivating a spirit of legalism? Now listen, you ask, how do I know? Well, are you promoting the gospel of grace or are you promoting your own standards of holiness? Do you think the best of other believers? And their decisions? And their struggles? Or do you compare? Do you show mercy 
in light of the sin and mistakes and failures of others? Do you show mercy to them? Or do you have a critical spirit? A critical spirit. Do we go above the line of Scripture? Here's the Scripture. Are we so good at theology to go above the lines of Scripture itself and add to it? Like the Pharisees of old? How do we cultivate and fix this in our own hearts? How do we enter into the heart of mercy for needy sinners? How do we enter into the joy of the presence of the Son of Man? We do this not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but by putting ourselves in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where we're going to go now for the balance of our time. We're going to look at Jesus, and we are going to fall in love with him even more. And we're going to see his glory. We're going to let this stuff go. We're going to knife it out individually and in our families and in this church. We look then finally in the balance of our time to the truth, the final heading of the truth. Brothers and sisters, get ready to turn in the Bible. Get ready to see Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. If you have a bulletin insert, it might be helpful to follow along the verses as we go. If we're ever going to do business with Christ, with our own hearts, we got to see Jesus. So we go to the truth. Jesus has come, the Lord of the Sabbath. He's come to do good by showing mercy to needy sinners. And the greatest good is not physical healing. The greatest, that was just a picture That was just a pointer. The greatest good that we can ever receive in this life, which lasts forever, is to enter in to divine rest, to enter into the rest found only in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know your Bibles. Think about the book of John. If you've read the book of John, it's very theological. The various Jewish feasts anticipate Jesus. I love it. They testify to him, those feasts from the Old Testament. They are fulfilled in Jesus. They are completed by Jesus. They are the shadows. He is the substance. This is true of the Passover feast in John chapter 6. This is true of the Feast of the Tabernacles in John chapter 8. This is true of the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10. This is true of all of those feasts. Is this, do you think, true of the Sabbath itself? Could it be that the Sabbath points to him? Could it be that Jesus fulfills the Sabbath, that our Sabbath rest is found in him? Well, let's go to the Word of God and find out. And glory in the Lord of the Sabbath. And so I want you to glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Listen, frantic Christian, frantic Christian here today. Anybody with me? Frantic Christian? Pharisaical tendency Christian? Like me? Always comparing myself to others. It's time to re-rest in Jesus today. 
And for those of you who are always trying to prove yourself be a for a holy God, trying to be better than the next guy, being sincere in what you believe, trying to hope that your good outweighs your bad on the day of judgment and God will sweep the rest under the rug. For you, I hope today for the first time ever, you rest in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say this. I want you to take your Bibles now and turn to Genesis. It's the first page. Genesis chapter 2 and find verse 1. And I want to say thank you so much. I give credit where credit is due to my mentor, one of them, uh, Dr. Fred Zaspel, who put me on to this biblical theology of rest. Dr. Fred Zaspel. Genesis chapter 2. Here we go. we got to go fast. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. You're familiar, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And six days he created all things, and the seventh day he rested. Verse Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And so the seventh day, this day of rest, is the culminating day of creation. It's the rest. And rest, of course, means to cease from work. God, of course, didn't get tired on that day. He didn't need refreshment. God was never tired. So this rest, the rest of God, is not a rest of tiredness. It's a rest of accomplishment. It's a rest of satisfaction. Voila. It's finished. God sits back and takes pleasure in what he has done. This is God's rest. And each day, day one, day two, day three, all of these days were created, right? Created for man to enjoy. All of the days of creation were created for man to enjoy. How about the seventh day? Was this a delight of God, a rest of God to be enjoyed by Him alone? No, God blessed this day and He sanctified this day. For whom was it blessed? For whom would it make happy? For whom was it set apart for? Well, I think in this text, in Genesis 2, there's, there's an outward look beyond God Himself to mankind and a forward look that Mark in chapter 2, verse 27, picks up on that Sabbath was made for man. And so creation climaxes with divine contented rest, a rest that is set apart for man itself. Creation itself is to enjoy and to share in God's rest. With the living God, He has set aside rest. There is rest in Him. 
Man was made for rest. Man was made for peace. This was God's good intention. It was his good intention. Is it lawful for man to do good? This was God's good that he would give to the created order. This rest, this contentment with God to worship and enjoy him forever. And Adam and Eve, sure enough, were holy and happy and resting really good in perfect dependence upon God, trusting Him for the good, faith in Yahweh Elohim, perfect rest until chapter 3. Until chapter 3 when the, when the enjoyment of rest is completely forfeited. Instead, you have not rest, but you have what? Work. You have labor and toil and sweat and pain and death and curse. And sin has ruined our rest. Sin has ruined our rest. And God's work was over on day seven. But after man's sin, are you ready? God begins to work again. And you know what? He gets to work and he made garments out of animal skins to cover up their shame. And God has taken up the work now of preparing rest, even for ruined, fallen creatures like us. He's working to supply rest once again to sinful creatures. He has another Sabbath for this earth. He had another rest for this earth. And this theme is picked up again in Exodus chapter 16. Don't Don't pick up any of the manna, this bread from heaven, on the Sabbath day when they're wandering in the wilderness in Exodus 16. Why? Why don't pick it up on the Sabbath day? Because God's people needed a a weekly reminder of God's grace, a weekly reminder of His provision for their needs that they could not meet on their own. They could not produce manna. They would die without God, and they needed to be reminded weekly. And so that rest, that Sabbath rest, is a reminder of grace and provision of God. It was a reminder of mercy. Does that sound familiar? For needy, helpless sinners who could not provide for themselves. And then you come to Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And the Sabbath is central to those commandments. The sign of God's covenant with Israel, very important to God. In fact, I would argue this, it's debatable, but I would argue it. The Sabbath served as a foundation for all of the Israelite festivals in various different ways. Perhaps the most compelling in this whole argument about the sabbatical year and the Sabbath festival was the the specific Sabbath festival called the year of Jubilee. A year of Jubilee. The ultimate Sabbath. Forty-nine years, the land is worked. On the 50th year, the land rested. A seven of sevens, the ultimate Sabbath. The year of Jubilee. Take your Bibles now and turn to Leviticus chapter 25 and find verse 10. It's on page 132 if you have a Bible in the pew back in front of you. Leviticus chapter 25. Find verse 10. Let's read about this Sabbath festival called the Year of Jubilee. Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 10. You shall shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release. 
through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Does that sound fun? Sound like rejoicing? Sound like the bridegroom and the good piece of clothing and the new wine of joy? Why do your disciples not fast and mourn and have an ugly face like us and take religion seriously? Why do you eat and drink and seem to like Jesus and have some joy? It's important in fact the year of jubilee has begun in Jesus Christ. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his own family. Verse 11, you shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. So, again, 49 years the land was cultivated and worked. On the 50th year, all the fields and would, would rest, and, and they would not be worked. And a trumpet would sound at the beginning of that year, and liberty would be proclaimed, and there would be release all throughout the land, not just for the land would rest, not just the land would rest. No, no. Property was returned to previous owners who had lost it, and slaves were freed and returned to their family. This was the year of Jubilee, a pinnacle Sabbath celebration. It shouted four things like liberty and freedom and restoration and rest and forgiveness and release from bondage. And God throughout the Old Testament is multiplying these reminders of rest. And so we come then to Deuteronomy. Just flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 5, page 190. Deuteronomy chapter 5. And find verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12 says this Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And so now we find that the Sabbath is grounded in God's deliverance of Israel from slavery. It's a note of labor giving way to rest and rest as a divine gift from God. It's a rescue from God. And so the idea of divine redemption from the slavery of Egypt is not foreign to that of divine rest, but coincides with it, listen to me, for fallen sinful mankind, God's rest is redemption. It is redemption. And so the Sabbath speaks of rest. It is not a human rest, but God's rest in which man may graciously share. The Sabbath speaks of grace and divine provision and redemption and release from bondage. The Sabbath is much more than a cessation of activity. It's much more than a sign by which God's covenant people are identified. The Sabbath was all a picture. And there still remains today the reality of rest for the people of God. And the Sabbath points the time of fullness of rest, rest by which God's grace 
in God's time will be given to his people. How will this come to fruition? How will this rest be brought to weak and weary sinners like us? Well, Jesus' first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, in his synagogue, is a preaching and an exposition of Isaiah 61, in which he expounds the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And in fact, at the very end of that passage, he says, it is now time for me to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The year of jubilee is here. I've come. I've come to bring you rest. And then he closed the book. I love it. He closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You think? Because Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For he is the Lord of the Sabbath. An astounding claim. Yahweh himself, he's above the Sabbath. He clarifies it. He expands it. He fulfills it. He becomes it. The old is out. The new one is here. Restful joy found in the presence of the bridegroom. An astounding declaration. The Lord of the Sabbath. But I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 12 and let it coincide with our passage that we have here. Matthew Chapter 12, it was read in our scripture reading. I want you to go back, though, to Matthew chapter 11 and find verse 28, just like Jeremy read in the scripture reading. So to go Matthew chapter 11, find verse 28, 969, if you have a Bible from the back, 969. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Get rid of the chapter division. At that time. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. Do you think maybe Matthew is connecting the rest that Jesus gives at the end of chapter 11 at that time with the Sabbath rest? The rest which Jesus graciously offers is the rest to which the Sabbath pointed. Jesus, in him, the Sabbath finds its fullness. In him, the Sabbath finds its true meaning. Remember that Jesus often healed on the Sabbath, did he not? He just made a point of it. I don't think he was trying to be a meanie. I think he had a message. There was something right about him doing so on the Sabbath. That's how far they had missed it. In fact, just don't turn to this. We don't have time. But look, just think about, maybe write down Luke chapter 13. In verse 16, we'll get to this in further expositions, but 
Luke chapter 13, verse 16. Here's a, a woman with 18 years of sickness. Satan had bound probably a demonic spirit for 18 long years. And Luke chapter 13, verse 16 says, And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound, Satan had bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? Is that not the whole point of the Sabbath rest that I'm bringing? Why did he say that? Because the Sabbath healings were designed to illustrate something, to illustrate release from the satanic bondage of sin. They, they point to the rest of redemption from sin found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, there's so much here. Do you remember last time we were in John chapter 5? Let me make sense of John chapter 5. Turn to John chapter 5. I don't have a page number. This is, this is for free. Go to John chapter 5. Find verse 16. John chapter 5 and verse 16. You can get excited about this. Here we go. Get excited. John chapter 5. Here's a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. Locked in paralysis and Jesus heals him after 38 years. Find verse 16. You there? John 5, 16 says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now look at what Jesus says in light of this, what we've talked about. Now let these words sink in. But he answered them, My Father is working until now. And I myself am working For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. My Father, Jesus says, is working until now, and I myself am working. What is the nature of the Sabbath work of our Lord Jesus Christ? What has Jesus been doing? He's been freeing a man in bondage, the withered hand, his right hand. He's feeding his hungry disciples. He's freeing a helpless man in bondage for 38 years. And these miracles are a sign of a greater release, of a greater freedom, a freedom from the slavery due to sin. And Jesus makes a strong connection here. This is Jesus' work. I am working. This is my Father's work. We've been working. We've been working for a very long time. In fact, we got back to work in Genesis chapter 3.15 when God put the bloody coverings over the shameful exposure of Adam and Eve. And they've worked. And they've been working the work of redemption. They've been reversing the curse. And they've been working it until now, the text says. It's as if the work is almost finished. As Jesus is speaking at the end of John chapter 7, that his work, that as he's entering in this work of release, is until now. It's almost finished. As the shadow of the cross looms. And the climactic expression of Sabbath work 
The moment that would once and for all secure redemption and rest. The moment that would secure forever a new Eden. The restoration of holiness. The restoration of happiness. That would forever undo the curse of sin. That would be the the, the reason for an eternal year of jubilee. That would be the source of freedom. The source of provision. The source of joy, joy. True release from bondage. The final work was done. In John chapter 9, verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I am working until now. Jesus was working until he said, it is finished. And when he finished the work, he had done everything necessary to free his people from their sin. He finished the work of destroying the certificate of debt against us. He finished the work by crushing the head of the serpent, Satan of old. Fred Zaspel says it well, quotes, The Sabbath work, the Sabbath work pointed to a finished work of God in providing redemptive rest for His people through the death of His Son. In quotes. So the big question is this. Have you entered the Sabbath rest? Have you entered the Sabbath rest? Christian, for us, why are we so frantic? The rest is available today. Right now, this rest of redemption This fountain is open through the finished work of Jesus because Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, He'd offered one sacrifice for sin for all time. What did He do when He was finished working? He sat down, right? He sat down because He was done. It was finished. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, having accomplished our redemption. Redemption is finished and rest may now be enjoyed. Kids, listen to me. If you're listening to me here on, online or whatever, listen. The rest found in Jesus Christ can be enjoyed this day. He's alive. He offers you rest right this day. The author of Hebrews is right. He says that this rest is entered by faith alone to those who cease from their own works. Hebrews 4 verse 3 For we who have believed enter that rest. Or Hebrews chapter 4 verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. On the Sabbath, no work allowed. Don't even pick up a stick. No sticks. No gathering of manna. 
Oh, because in Christ, God has provided plenty. Just trust in Him. No sowing or harvesting this year. God has given enough in Jesus. Believe it. This is the year of jubilee. This is the year of release. By the work of the Son, God has declared all debts canceled to them who believe. Enter into His rest. Do not work, God says. Do not work, He says. Just trust only the person who does not work but believes on Him who justifies the ungodly. He is the one who enters that rest. And that rest is a celebration not of our work. It's a celebration of God's work. A work that was taken up long ago and a work that is now finished in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder Isaac Watts could write such songs. No more, my God. I boast no more of all the duties I have done. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy Son. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before thy throne, but faith can answer thy demands by pleading what the Lord has done, the Lord of the Sabbath. Don't mistake the significance of the Sabbath. Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. No wonder he could say, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if we have rest, then it's time to rejoice. For we were like the leper. We were like the paralytic. We were like Matthew the tax collector. We were like the helpless man with the withered right hand. But the divine Son of Man has worked good for us by showing mercy to helpless sinners like us. Mercy in Christ. And so now we have entered the eternal Sabbath. Brothers and sisters, praise God. Now we are at rest.